Most of us have books that stay with us, sometimes all our lives, maybe because the language is so incredibly beautiful or they resonate with our experience somehow or they help us understand something about the world. Sometimes all of the above and we get a bit obsessed with that writer. I read a lot of Sonia Hartnett at one point. Sarah Krasnerstein has been showered with awards for her own writing, and she found herself at one point becoming very interested in one of Australia's most celebrated writers, Peter Carey. In her latest book, Sarah looks at what he tells us about ourselves and our history, and whether we're ready to hear it. It's called On Peter Carey, part of the Writers on Writers series. Sarah Krasnerstein, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you carried around some of Carey's work for about two decades before you actually cracked open the cover. What was it that kept you away from it? So I write in the in the book that it was my own failure, certain perceptual shorthand um, in which I had grown, I think, quite tired of particular fictions when it came to our history. And I knew enough about him to know he was a white male writer writing predominantly about Australian history. And so the awards that he'd won, double Booker Prize, were enough to keep that book on my shelf in the hope of one day reading it, but still not enough to actually read it. Um, and then COVID hit and we were reading what we had, um, no browsing in the bookshops, unfortunately. And that was great because I could discover what he was truly doing. And so what happened when you did open The True History of the Kelly Gang? Going, okay, it's another Australian history book. It was just, I was gobsmacked. I, from the first line, and I write again in the in the book, that is just one of the best first lines in, I think, English fiction. Um the voice of Ned Kelly that he inhabits and create that creates and inhabits was just remarkable. The sustained nature of the kind of emotional power of it was remarkable. And I was sucked in from the beginning. Yeah, he's got that really devil may care approach to punctuation, hasn't it? And totally. it just kind of pours out of the 19th century towards you. Extremely bold. So like, you know, there's full stops are rare, commas are rare. And, you know, that's a big writerly decision. It's a huge editorial decision. And it worked. So, uh, yeah. Well, the figure of Ned Kelly has loomed so large in Australian psyches. You know, we all learned about him in various different ways in school. How did you come to feel about this archetypal figure when you were reading? When we think about, you know, him set against what we now understand about the the colonial times. Yeah, so like, you know, I moved here in the middle of high school, uh, that was the mid-90s, despite having an accent this strong, and I had always been quite alienated from these bushrangers. I didn't even know what that kind of, what that meant. So I came to it, you know, for better or worse, with that fresh uh, perspective. And, uh, you know, as Carrie says in multiple interviews about that book, he was explaining, I think, to himself, above all, why we have a bushranger who occupies terrain that's normally reserved in other countries for, you know, statesmen or war heroes. We've got, you know, a horse thief. And what does that say about us? So I think there's something beautiful there in kind of the consistency of our magnetization towards that archetype, as you said, which is, I think, at its heart, something about we, we identify with resistance towards an exercise of unjust authority. And that impulse is there, even in people who might otherwise be quite um, whitewashing when it comes to the reality of history in this country. So how does Kerry deal with that idea that, you know, we, we've latched onto uh, Ned Kelly as the mm. victim of injustice, 
but he sits within the context of a much larger injustice that's being done to Indigenous people yes. by colonial settlers. So he doesn't engage with it directly, but it's there on every page. And it's there by going straight to the emotional heart of the matter. So he short circuits any kind of um, higher level uh, intellectualized debate and obfuscation. And he just gets to the heart of this little boy on a, you know, sa- on a sandy, hill- windy hillside where born into less because others had stolen more. And that's where we can kind of meet him. And that's where we start to see ourselves. Born into less because others had stolen more. That is an unbelievably powerful line. Mm. You also write, Sarah Krasnerstein, about how, you know, uh, Carey had been really influenced by Sidney Nolan's work. So you've got this kind of white male nexus, haven't you? Carey, Nolan, Kelly. How do you approach that in in your uh, kind of understanding of Carey's work? Yeah, so kind of, you know, we, we, the idea that, you know, this double prize winning, double Booker Prize winning author um, is somehow not, and somehow at the margins or at the periphery is initially quite ridiculous, as is as it is when it comes to a painter like Nolan, can hung on any, you know, fine art museum in the world. But when you look at where they come from, you know, their parents, their grandparents, and the, the reality of the convict stain and what that means in terms of internalized shame, what it means to kind of be making the English colonizers your judge or your gold standard of everything, and kind of how that tumbles through the generations in terms of our discomfort with our reality, with our history. That's kind of the connecting force. That's at play with Ned Kelly, I think, as well as uh, Carrie's attraction to him as a, as a subject for a novel. Yeah. Well, particularly if you've got any kind of Irish heritage that Yes. kind of setting yourself against the English is a really interesting place, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. Well, and you actually went on a bit of a pilgrimage at one point out to Bacchus Marsh, which is on the outskirts of Melbourne. Yep. Um, it's not a traditionally strong tourist attraction, Bacchus Marsh, and you went to look at the car dealership that Carey's father owned. What did that show you about his his uh, how much he was marginalised? Yeah, well, so part of the work is kind of a, what, what new could you possibly say about Ned Kelly or Peter Carey? So I kind of tried to physically put myself in the space of that he comes from, where, you know, it's changed over time, but the scale of that small town remains the same, and you can still kind of discern it. The light is the same. What was the distance between his school and, and the garage where his folks worked? Where, what did the school look like? What did his home look like? And in that light, you can kind of see before we had the, you know, uh, a world that was self-evident to us, what would it have felt like to be looking towards England as your model for uh, literature or politics, art, um, but living, you know, at the edge of empire. So I'm wandering around trying to get a sense of scale. We're speaking with Sarah Krasnerstein, who has written many books. You might remember The Trauma Cleaner. That one stuck with me. Uh, Her latest is called On Peter Carey, and it's part of Black Ink's Writers on Writers series. Perhaps you've got a book that's dealt with Australia, Australian history and identity, and it's stuck with you somehow. What taught you about our home? That concept of home is really interesting, isn't it, Mm. Sarah? You engage with um, Carey's idea of home, a man who uh, moved to New York, and stayed there, but kept kind of the lens on Australia. What did you conclude? Well, it's interesting because, you know, Carrie moves in 1991 to Manhattan. So he's been there for for decades. And yet 
for the most part, his work since then, and that's a novel every three years, has dealt with Australian history. And so his, his, you know, this landscape and our culture here is still his material. So I was interested as a writer for in that sense of kind of displacement, not belonging, writing towards something and outside of something. And I think it does inform, you know, his ability to say certain things, um, his perspective, certainly. And uh, it's live in different ways in each of the topics that he has tackled, which essentially are things that we're happy to read about in historical fiction, not happy to talk about or look at directly in the form of um, more traditional nonfiction in history. That is fascinating how you were saying before how it just kind of cuts straight through the intellectual blah, blah that Mm. we might have constructed around our senses of our history and just goes straight for the emotional heart. And I'll read our listeners a quote from David Williamson that you include in the book, um, who wrote about the true history of the Kelly Gang that I feel I now understand my heritage a whole lot better than I did before I read your book, which is a lot more than straight history has ever done for me. So what does that tell us about how we're doing history in this country? Well, I think, unfortunately, there's probably all of us are now aware um, post-referendum exactly how we deal with our history. And we like to, you know, use this kind of intellectualized scaffolding to come up with, um, you know, justifications that don't go to the heart of the matter. Uh, We're very uncomfortable comfortable with it. We build narratives that tell us that we are worthy, that we, you know, are, are good, our hands are clean. And, you know, we can we're perpetually taking, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. So that discomfort and kind of what emotional motivation might, might lie at the heart of it, what it does to us psychologically and our ability to feel empathy and compassion and have, you know, effective social justice, effective institutions of the state, that continues to be something that we struggle to resolve. So what, what books would you recommend on a high school syllabus to kind of cut through? apart from the the true history of the Kelly Gang. So, I mean, yeah. So apart from true history, I think Oscar and Lucinda is a wonderful thing. Although, you know, to to buy it is to almost dare certainly a high school student to read it because they are weighty tomes. I mean, I think that comes in at 800 pages, but it's such a rollicking read. It's a wonderful, propulsive, funny, um, devastating. It's a wonderful novel and it kind of gets to the heart of who was in that those Sydney settlements what were their motivations? Why were they there? Um, misfits, kind of, I'd say, subsequent sons, people who wanted more than their actual rightful home places were going to give them. And what does that motivation, what does that drive do um, when you're trying to set up a nation? So he does that kind of incidentally by telling these stories. Um, and, you know, again, putting against the Australian landscape, this very bizarre culture that uses religious language to ignore, you know, genocidal murder. It, it, it uses kind of these, these nation-building aims um, to justify these you know, personal economic motivations. So he does that very lightly while telling what is a very compelling human story. We did, I think, the kind, A Kindness Cut by Thea Astley in high school. Oh, yeah. But I would like to see what contention more widely uh, read. Yes, yes. Yeah, you've got to have a kind of mosaic, don't you, of Australian history narratives. Yes, yeah. yes. Sarah, you're right of Kerry and Sydney Nolan, who both moved overseas, that yes. sometimes that's the cost of refusing the false histories. If you look at certain things directly, you might never again make it home. And I think of all yes. the Australian writers who, you know, swanned off to London, yeah. Clive James, Germaine Greer... Is is that compulsory? I mean, can people write about Australia 
within Australia and be accurate? I think now there's more space to do that, but to the degree that I could imagine myself into their experiences, you know, there's a definite push-me-pull-you of, yes, the centre of world artistry, of creative industry or literature is in England, it's in New York, and if you stay here, you're at the periphery, you don't matter so much, so you really have to go there. And at the on the other hand as well, who we make our judge, who we make our audience, that's a personal decision as well as a commercial decision. And when we look at artists and writers like Helen Garner, who never left, we do see it as kind of a personal decision at the end of the day. So that's an interesting question about who went and who stayed. Well, and also, I guess that there's a question about whether uh, the choice to go is more about how Australia feels about you and what you're saying or how you feel about Australia. Yes. I mean, and, and I think also kind of what you can do with that. So what would it have meant to be, you know, we know that um, Kerry went to Geelong Grammar. We know he felt like a fish out of water there, but his time there made him feel like a fish out of water back in Bacchus March. So there was nowhere really that he fit, which is terrible from a personal perspective, but wonderful material for a writer, because if you were comfortable, probably you wouldn't um, create material that seeks to understand anything. That's a really interesting thing about class in Australia, Absolutely. isn't it? It can, if, if you step outside your boundaries, mm. you can feel like you belong nowhere. Yes, exactly. And yeah. we see that with Carrie, um, yeah, very strongly. Yeah, I am looking forward to many more books on class and intellectualism yes. in Australia. I think that would be a fascinating field of research. Yes. Um, you, you note that Carey's work isn't seen as radical today and that it's possible to misread his books as merely the rollicking yarns that they clearly also are. Uh, what are they to you? What's what's going on in their kind of pulsing heart? I mean, they're quite radical for the context in which he was being published and received. This is, you know, Michael Williams has said that this uh, Carrie is one of the most owned, least read in a certain generational bracket writers in the in, in the country. And I I was thinking about that in terms of well, these books are wildly successful, what, gobbled up by you know the UK market, gobbled up by you know bookstores and readers here. But if we truly understood that this was not just yes, it does contain all the tropes of empire and, you know, the outback. But if we looked underneath what he was doing, I don't think most of that audience would be as comfortable reading or owning him as as they might otherwise purport to be. Because um, so, it's very radical. He has an unflinching look at our history, an unflinching look at our relationships, our foreign policies, our media, um, the Whitlam years, things that remain controversial. Uh, and he is kind of always writing towards that great forgetting. There's a lot of things that remain controversial in Australian history because I think we just move on to the next thing. Greg's texted in, I can't say I enjoyed reading Carrie's Oscar and Lucinda, but it was worthwhile, even if uncomfortable in places. Some of the images of the Australian bush and early characters he gave in his writing still linger with me even after several years. And not all that glitters in Australian history is gold. You know, I thought of Patricia Wrightson too yeah. and the Nagan and the Stars, those kind of, you know, drawing on a culture that was not hers, but yeah. Illuminating it for a white child audience. Yeah, or I'm thinking also of the works of Alexis Wright for that reason. I think also, and that's such a beautiful text and testament to your listenership, is that we don't just read for comfort. We read to have our perceptions about, you know, our world, our relationship, ourselves challenged. So what happens when we turn to books purely for oblivion? We Something is really lost. So I respect, you know, the idea of, enjoy, of not enjoying something, but getting value out of it and looking at that kind of discomfort um, in a productive way. Favourite Peter Carey novel? Favourite uh, child? It's got to be uh, True History. I think it remains. Having worked through all the weighty tomes, and again, if you do a Writers on Writers, I don't recommend. It's the smartest thing to choose a writer whose average books are 800 pages, but yeah, Ned Kelly. I'm going to put that on my reading list for next time I have an enforced <laughs> sitting at home. 
<laughs> unable to re-hit the library moment. Sarah Krasenstein, it's been lovely chatting with you. Thanks, Thanks so much for time. having me. Sarah Krasenstein's latest book on Peter Carey is part of Black Ink's Writers on Writers series. It's small, even though it dealt with some very, very large books itself. It's out now. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.